Section four of Youth by Leo Tolstoy, translated by C. J. Hogarth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section four, chapters thirteen through sixteen. Chapter thirteen, I become grown up. When on May eighth I returned home from the final, the divinity examination, I found my acquaintance, the foreman from Razanov's, awaiting me. He had called once before to fit me for my gown, as well as for a tunic of glossy black cloth, the lapels of which were, on that occasion, only sketched in chalk. But to-day he had come to bring me the clothes in their finished state, with their gilt buttons wrapped in tissue-paper. Downing the garments, and finding them splendid, notwithstanding that St. Jerome assured me that the back of the tunic wrinkled badly, I went downstairs with a complacent smile which I was powerless to banish from my face, and sought Woloda, trying the while to affect unconsciousness of the admiring looks of the servants, who came darting out of the hall and corridor to gaze upon me with ravished eyes. Gabriel, the butler, overtook me in the salle, and after congratulating me with much empressement, handed me, according to instructions from my father, four banknotes as well as informed me that papa had also given orders that from that day forth the groom kuzma the phaeton and the bay horse krasovchnik were to be entirely at my disposal i was so overjoyed at this not altogether expected good fortune that i could no longer feign indifference in gabriel's presence but flustered and panting said the first thing which came into my head krasovchnik is a splendid trotter i think it was then catching sight of the various heads protruding from the doors of the hall and corridor, I felt that I could bear no more, and set off running at full speed across the saal, dressed as I was in the new tunic, with its shining gilt buttons. Just as I burst into Woloda's room I heard behind me the voices of Dubkoff and Nekhludoff, who had come to congratulate me, as well as to propose a dinner somewhere and the drinking of much champagne in honour of my matriculation. Dmitri informed me that, though he did not care for champagne, he would nevertheless join us that evening and drink my health, while Dubkoff remarked that I looked almost like a colonel, and Woloda omitted to congratulate me at all, merely saying in an acid way that he supposed we should now, in other words, in two days' time, be off into the country. The truth was that Woloda, though pleased at my matriculation, did not altogether like my becoming as grown up as himself. St. Jerome, who also joined us at this moment, said in a very pompous manner that his duties were now ended, and that although he did not know whether they had been well done or ill, at least he had done his best, and must depart to-morrow to his counts. In replying to their various remarks I could feel in spite of myself a pleased, agreeable, faintly self-sufficient smile playing over my countenance, as well as could remark that that smile communicated itself to those to whom I was speaking. So here I was without a tutor, yet with my own private droshky, my name printed on the list of students, a sword and belt of my own, and a chance of an occasional salute from officials. In short, I was grown up, and I suppose, happy. Finally, we arranged to go out and dine at five o'clock, but since Woloda presently went off to Dubkoff's, and Dmitri disappeared in his usual fashion, saying that there was something he must do before dinner, I was left with two whole hours still at my disposal. For a time I walked through the rooms of the house and looked at myself in all the mirrors, firstly with the tunic buttoned, then with it unbuttoned, and lastly with only the top button fastened. Each time it looked splendid. Eventually, though anxious not to show any excess of delight, I found myself unable to refrain from crossing over to the coach-house and stables to gaze at Krasovchik. 
Kuzma, and the Droshki. Then I returned, and once more began my tour of the rooms, where I looked at myself in all the mirrors as before, and counted my money over in my pocket, my face smiling happily the while. Yet not an hour had elapsed before I began to feel slightly ennui, to feel a shade of regret that no one was present to see me in my splendid position. I began to long for life and movement, and so sent out orders for the droshki to be got ready, since I had made up my mind to drive to the Kuznetsky bridge, and make some purchases. In this connection I recalled how, after matriculating, Woloda had gone and bought himself a lithograph of horses by Victor Adam, and some pipes and tobacco, wherefore I felt that I too must do the same. Amid glances showered upon me from every side, and with the sunlight reflected from my buttons, cap-badge, and sword, I drove to the Kuznetsky bridge, where, halting at a picture-shop, I entered it with my eyes looking to every side. It was not precisely horses by Adam which I meant to buy, since I did not wish to be accused of too closely imitating Woloda. Wherefore, out of shame for causing the obsequious shopmen such agitation as I appeared to do, I made a hasty selection, and pitched upon a water-colour of a woman's head which I saw displayed in the window, price twenty roubles. Yet no sooner had I paid the twenty roubles over the counter, than my heart smote me for having put two such beautifully dressed shop-assistants to so much trouble for such a trifle. Moreover, I fancied that they were regarding me with some disdain. Accordingly, in my desire to show them what manner of man I was, I turned my attention to a silver trifle which I saw displayed in a showcase, and recognizing that it was a porte-crayon, price eighteen roubles, requested that it should forthwith be wrapped in paper for me. Next the money paid, and the information acquired that the splendid pipes and tobacco were to be obtained in an adjacent emporium, I bowed to the two shopmen politely, and issued into the street with the picture under my arm. At the shop next door, which had painted on its signboard a negro smoking a cigar, I bought, likewise out of a desire to imitate no one, some Turkish tobacco, a Stambul hookah, and two pipes. On coming out of the shop, I had just entered the droshki, when I caught sight of Semenov, who was walking hurriedly along the pavement with his head bent down. Vexed that he should not have recognized me, I called out to him pretty loudly, "'Hold on a minute!' and whipping up the droshki, soon overtook him. "'How do you do?' I said. "'My respects to you,' he replied, but without stopping. "'Why are you not in your university uniform?' I next inquired. At this he stopped short with a frown, and parted his white teeth as though the sun were hurting his eyes. The next moment, however, he threw a glance of studied indifference at my droshki and uniform, and continued on his way. From the Kuznetsky Bridge I drove to a confectioner's in Sverskaya Street, and much as I should have liked it to be supposed that it was the newspapers which most interested me, I had no choice but to begin falling upon tartlet after tartlet. In fact, for all my bashfulness before a gentleman who kept regarding me with some curiosity from behind a newspaper, I ate with great swiftness a tartlet of each of the eight different sorts which the confectioner kept. On reaching home I experienced a slight touch of stomach-ache, but paid no attention to it, and set to work to inspect my purchases. Of these the picture so much displeased me that, instead of having it framed and hung in my room, as Woloda had done with his, I took pains to hide it behind a chest of drawers, where no one could see it. Likewise, though I also found the pork crayon distasteful, I was able, as I laid it on my table, to comfort myself with the thought that it was at least a silver article, so much capital as it were. 
and likely to be very useful to a student. As for the smoking things, I decided to put them into use at once and try their capabilities. Unsealing the four packages and carefully filling the Stamboul pipe with some fine-cut reddish-yellow Turkish tobacco, I applied a hot cinder to it, and taking the mouthpiece between my first and second fingers, a position of the hand which greatly caught my fancy, started to inhale the smoke. The smell of the tobacco seemed delightful, yet something burnt my mouth and caught me by the breath. Nevertheless I hardened my heart, and continued to draw abundant fumes into my interior. Then I tried blowing rings and retaining the smoke. Soon the room became filled with blue vapors, while the pipe started to crackle and the tobacco to fly out in sparks. Presently also I began to feel a smarting in my mouth and a giddiness in my head. Accordingly, I was on the point of stopping and going to look at myself and my pipe in the mirror, when, to my surprise, I found myself staggering about. The room was whirling round and round, and as I peered into the mirror, which I reached only with some difficulty, I perceived that my face was as white as a sheet. Hardly had I thrown myself down upon a sofa, when such nausea and faintness swept over me that, making up my mind that the pipe had proved my death, I expected every moment to expire. Terribly frightened, I tried to call out for someone to come and help me, and to send for the doctor. However, this panic of mine did not last long, for I soon understood what the matter was, and remained lying on the sofa with a racking headache and my limbs relaxed as I stared dully at the stamp on the package of tobacco, the pipe-tube coiled on the floor, and the odds and ends of tobacco and confectioner's tartlets which were littered about. Truly, I thought to myself in my dejection and disillusionment, I cannot be quite grown up if I cannot smoke as other fellows do, and should be fated never to hold a chibuk between my first and second fingers, or to inhale and puff smoke through a flaxen moustache. When Dmitri called for me at five o'clock he found me in this unpleasant predicament. After drinking a glass of water, however, I felt nearly recovered and ready to go with him. "'So much for your trying to smoke,' said he, as he gazed at the remnants of my debauch. "'It is a silly thing to do, and waste of money as well. I long ago promised myself never to smoke. But come along. We have to call for Dubkoff.' Chapter Fourteen: How Woloda and Dubkoff Amused Themselves The moment that Dmitri entered my room I perceived from his face, manner of walking, and the signs which in him denoted ill-humour, a blinking of the eyes, and a grim holding of his head to one side, as though to straighten his collar, that he was in the coldly correct frame of mind which was his when he felt dissatisfied with himself. It was a frame of mind, too, which always produced a chilling effect upon my feelings towards him. Of late I had begun to observe and appraise my friend's character a little more, but our friendship had in no way suffered from that, since it was still too young and strong for me to be able to look upon Dmitri as anything but perfect, no matter in what light I regarded him. In him there were two personalities, both of which I thought beautiful. One which I loved devotedly, was kind, mild, forgiving, gay, and conscious of being those various things. When he was in this frame of mind, his whole exterior, the very tone of his voice, his every movement, appeared to say, I am kind and good-natured, and rejoice in being so, and every one can see that I so rejoice. The other of his two personalities, one which I had only just begun to apprehend, and before the majesty of which I bowed in spirit, was that of a man who was cold, stern to himself and to others, proud, religious to the point of fanaticism, 
and pedantically moral. At the present moment he was, as I say, this second personality. With that frankness which constituted a necessary condition of our relations, I told him as soon as we entered the droshky how much it depressed and hurt me to see him, on this my fete day, in a frame of mind so irksome and disagreeable to me. "'What has upset you so?' I asked him. "'Will you not tell me?' "'My dear Nicholas,' was his slow reply as he gave his head a nervous twitch to one side and blinked his eyes. Since I have given you my word never to conceal anything from you, you have no reason to suspect me of secretiveness. One cannot always be in exactly the same mood, and if I seem at all put out, that is all there is to say about it." What a marvellously open, honourable character his is, I thought to myself, and dropped the subject. We drove the rest of the way to Dubkoff's in silence. Dubkoff's flat was an unusually fine one or, at all events, so it seemed to me. Everywhere were rugs, pictures, gardenias, striped hangings, photographs, and curved settees, while on the walls hung guns, pistols, pouches, and the mounted heads of wild beasts. It was the appearance of this apartment which made me aware whom it was that Woloda had imitated in the scheme of his own sitting-room. We found Dubkoff and Woloda engaged in cards, while seated also at the table, and watching the game with close attention, was a gentleman whom I did not know, but who appeared to be of no great importance, judging by the modesty of his attitude. Dubkoff himself was in a silk dressing-gown and soft slippers, while Woloda, seated opposite him on a divan, was in his shirt-sleeves as well as to judge by his flushed face and the impatient cursory glance which he gave us for a second as he looked up from the cards, much taken up with the game. On seeing me, he reddened still more. "'Well, it is for you to deal,' he remarked to Dubkoff. In an instant I divined that he did not altogether relish my becoming acquainted with the fact that he gambled. Yet his expression had nothing in it of confusion only a look which seemed to me to say, "'Yes, I play cards, and if you are surprised at that, it is only because you are so young. There is nothing wrong about it. It is necessity at our age.' Yes, I at once divined and understood that. Instead of dealing, however, Dubkoff rose and shook hands with us, after which he bade us both be seated, and then offered us pipes, which we declined. "'Here is our diplomat, then, the hero of the day,' he said to me. "'Good Lord!' How you look like a colonel!" Hm, I muttered in reply, though once more feeling a complacent smile overspread my countenance. I stood in that awe of Dubkoff which a sixteen-year-old boy naturally feels for a twenty-seven-year-old man, of whom his elders say that he is a very clever young man, who can dance well and speak French, and who, though secretly despising one's youth, endeavours to conceal the fact. Yet, despite my respect for him, I somehow found it difficult and uncomfortable, throughout my acquaintanceship with him, to look him in the eyes. I have since remarked that there are three kinds of men whom I cannot face easily, namely those who are much better than myself, those who are much worse, and those between whom and myself there is a mutual determination not to mention some particular thing of which we both are aware. Dubkoff may have been a much better fellow than myself, or he may have been a much worse but the point was that he lied very frequently without recognizing the fact that I was aware of his doing so, yet had determined not to mention it. "'Let us play another round,' said Woloda, hunching one shoulder after the manner of papa, and reshuffling the cards. 
"'How persistent you are,' said Dubkoff. "'We can play all we want to afterwards. Well, one more round, then.' During the play I looked at their hands. Woloda's hands were large and red, whilst in the crook of the thumb and the way in which the other fingers curved themselves round the cards as he held them they so exactly resembled papa's that now and then I could not help thinking that Woloda purposely held the cards thus so as to look the more like a grown-up. Yet the next moment, looking at his face, I could see that he had not a thought in his mind beyond the game. Dubkoff's hands, on the contrary, were small, puffy, and inclined to clench themselves, as well as extremely neat and small-fingered. They were just the kind of hands which generally display rings, and which are most to be seen on persons who are both inclined to use them, and fond of auger de vertu. Woloda must have lost, for the gentleman who was watching the play remarked that Vladimir Petrovitch had terribly bad luck, while Dubkoff reached for a notebook, wrote something in it, and then showing Woloda what he had written, said, "'Is that right?' "'Yes,' said Woloda, glancing with feigned carelessness at the notebook. "'Now let us go.' Woloda took Dubkoff, and I gave Dmitri a lift in my droshky. "'What were they playing at?' I inquired of Dmitri. "'At Piquet. It is a stupid game. In fact, all such games are stupid.' "'And were they playing for much?' "'No, not very much, but more than they ought to.' "'Do you ever play yourself?' No, I swore never to do so, but Dubkoff will play with any one he can get hold of. He ought not to do that, I remarked. So Woloda does not play so well as he does? Perhaps Dubkoff ought not to, as you say, yet there is nothing especially bad about it at all. He likes playing, and plays well, but he is a good fellow all the same. I had no idea of this, I said. We must not think ill of him, concluded Dmitri, since he is a simply splendid fellow. I like him very much, and always shall like him in spite of his weakness." For some reason or another the idea occurred to me that, just because Dmitri stuck up so stoutly for Dubkoff, he neither liked nor respected him in reality, but was determined, out of stubbornness and a desire not to be accused of inconstancy, never to own to the fact. He was one of those people who love their friends their life long, not so much because those friends remain always dear to them, as because, Having once, possibly mistakenly, liked a person, they look upon it as dishonorable to cease ever to do so. CHAPTER Fifteen. I AM FETTED AT DINNER Dubkoff and Woloda knew every one at the restaurant by name, and every one, from the waiters to the proprietor, paid them great respect. No time was lost in allotting us a private room where a bottle of iced champagne, upon which I tried to look with as much indifference as I could, stood ready waiting for us, and where we were served with a most wonderful repast selected by Dubkoff from the French menu. The meal went off most gaily and agreeably, notwithstanding that Dubkoff, as usual, told us blood-curdling tales of doubtful veracity. Among others, a tale of how his grandmother once shot dead three robbers who were attacking her, a recital at which I blushed, closed my eyes, and turned away from the narrator and that Woloda reddened visibly whenever I opened my mouth to speak, which was the more uncalled for on his part, seeing that never once, so far as I can remember, did I say anything shameful. After we had been given champagne, every one congratulated me, and I drank hands across with Dmitri and Dubkoff, and wished them joy. Since, however, I did not know to whom the bottle of champagne belonged—it was explained to me later that it was common property— 
I considered that, in return, I ought to treat my friends out of the money which I had never ceased to finger in my pocket. Accordingly, I stealthily extracted a ten-rouble note, and beckoning the waiter to my side, handed him the money, and told him in a whisper, yet not so softly but that every one could hear me seeing that every one was staring at me in dead silence, to bring, if you please, a half-bottle of champagne. At this Woloda reddened again, and began to fidget so violently, and to gaze upon myself and every one else with such a distracted air, that I felt sure I had somehow put my foot in it. However, the half-bottle came, and we drank it with great gusto. After that things went on merrily. Dubkoff continued his unending fairy-tales, while Woloda also told funny stories, and told them well, too, in a way I should never have credited him so that our laughter rang long and loud. Their best efforts lay in imitation, and in variance of a certain well-known saw. "'Have you ever been abroad?' one would say to the other, for instance. "'No,' the one interrogated would reply. "'But my brother plays the fiddle.' Such perfection had the pair attained in this species of comic absurdity, that they could answer any question by its means, while they would also endeavour to unite two absolutely unconnected matters without a previous question having been asked at all, yet say everything with a perfectly serious face, and produce a most comic effect. I too began to try to be funny, but as soon as ever I spoke they either looked at me askance, or did not look at me until I had finished, so that my anecdotes fell flat. Yet though Dubkoff always remarked, "'Our diplomat is lying, brother,' I felt so exhilarated with the champagne and the company of my elders, that the remark scarcely touched me. Only Dmitri, though he drank level with the rest of us, continued in the same severe, serious frame of mind—a fact which put a certain check upon the general hilarity. "'Now look here, gentlemen,' said Dubkoff at last. "'After dinner we ought to take the diplomat in hand. How would it be for him to go with us to see Auntie? There we could put him through his paces.' "'Ah, but Nekhludoff will not go there,' objected Woloda. "'Oh, unbearable, insupportable man of quiet habits that you are!' cried Dubkoff, turning to Dmitri. "'Yet come with us, and you shall see what an excellent lady my dear auntie is.' "'I will neither go myself nor let him go,' replied Dmitri. "'Let whom go? The diplomat? Why, you yourself saw how he brightened up at the very mention of auntie.' "'It is not so much that I will not let him go,' continued Dmitri, rising and beginning to pace the room without looking at me, "'as that I neither wish him nor advise him to go. He is not a child now and if he must go, he can go alone, without you. Surely you are ashamed of this, Dubkoff? Ashamed of always wanting others to do all the wrong things that you yourself do? "'But what is there so very wrong in my inviting you all to come and take a cup of tea with my aunt?' said Dubkoff, with a wink at Woloda. "'If you don't like us going, it is your affair. Yet we are going all the same. Are you coming, Woloda?' "'Yes, yes,' assented Woloda. "'We can go there, and then return to my rooms and continue our piquet.' "'Do you want to go with them or not?' said Dmitri, approaching me. "'No,' I replied, at the same time making room for him to sit down beside me on the divan. "'I did not wish to go in any case, and since you advise me not to, nothing on earth will make me go now. Yet,' I added a moment later, "'I cannot honestly say that I have no desire to go. All I say is that I am glad I am not going.' "'That is right,' he said. "'Live your own life, and do not dance to any one's piping. That is the better way.' This little tiff not only failed to mar our hilarity, but even increased it. 
Dmitri suddenly reverted to the kindly mood which I loved best, so great, as I afterwards remarked on more than one occasion, was the influence which the consciousness of having done a good deed exercised upon him. At the present moment the source of his satisfaction was the fact that he had stopped my expedition to Antes. He grew extraordinarily gay, called for another bottle of champagne, which was against his rules, invited someone who was a perfect stranger into our room, plied him with wine, sang God am a secretary, requested every one to join him in the chorus, and proposed that we should and drink at the Sokolniki Muse. "'Let us enjoy ourselves to-night,' he said with a laugh. "'It is in honour of his matriculation that you now see me getting drunk for the first time in my life.' Yet somehow this merriment sat ill upon him. He was like some good-natured father or tutor who is pleased with his young charges and lets himself go for their amusement, yet at the same time tries to show them that one can enjoy oneself decently and in an honourable manner. However, his unexpected gaiety had an infectious influence upon myself and my companions, and the more so because each of us had now drunk about half a bottle of champagne. It was in this pleasing frame of mind that I went out into the main salon to smoke a cigarette, which Dubkoff had given me. In rising I noticed that my head seemed to swim a little, and that my legs and arms retained their natural positions only when I bent my thoughts determinedly upon them. At other moments my legs would deviate from the straight line, and my arms describe strange gestures. I concentrated my whole attention upon the members in question, forced my hands first to raise themselves and button my tunic, and then to smooth my hair, though they ruffled my locks in doing so, and lastly commanded my legs to march me to the door, a function which they duly performed, though at one time with too much reluctance and another with too much abandon the left leg in particular coming to a halt every moment on tiptoe. Some one called out to me, "'Where are you going to? They will bring you a cigar-light directly.' But I guessed the voice to be Woloda's, and feeling satisfied somehow that I had succeeded in divining the fact, merely smiled airily in reply, and continued on my way. CHAPTER Sixteen, THE QUARREL in the main salon I perceived sitting at a small table a short, squat gentleman of the professional type. He had a red moustache, and was engaged in eating something or another, while by his side sat a tall, clean-shaven individual with whom he was carrying on a conversation in French. Somehow the aspect of these two persons displeased me. Yet I decided for all that to light my cigarette at the candelabrum which was standing before them. Looking from side to side to avoid meeting their gaze, I approached the table and applied my cigarette to the flame. When it was fairly alight, I involuntarily threw a glance at the gentleman who was eating, and found his grey eyes fixed upon me with an expression of intense displeasure. Just as I was turning away his red moustache moved a little, and he said in French, "'I do not like people to smoke when I am dining, my good sir.' I murmured something inaudible. "'No, I do not like it at all,' he went on sternly, and with a glance at his clean-shaven companion, as though inviting him to admire the way in which he was about to deal with me. "'I do not like it, my good sir, nor do I like people who have the impudence to puff their smoke up one's very nose.' By this time I had gathered that it was myself he was scolding, and at first felt as though I had been altogether in the wrong. "'I did not mean to inconvenience you,' I said. Well, if you did not suppose you were being impertinent, at least I did. You are a cad, young sir," he shouted in reply. 
"'But what right have you to shout at me like that?' I exclaimed, feeling that it was now he that was insulting me, and growing angry accordingly. "'This much right,' he replied, "'that I never allow myself to be overlooked by any one, and that I always teach young fellows like yourself their manners. What is your name, young sir? And where do you live?' At this I felt so hurt that my teeth chattered and I felt as though I were choking, yet all the while I was conscious of being in the wrong, and so, instead of offering any further rudeness to the offended one, humbly told him my name and address. "'And my name, young sir,' he returned, "'is Kolpikoff, and I will trouble you to be more polite to me in future. However, you will hear from me again.' "'Vous aurez de mes nouvelles.' the conversation had been carried on wholly in French, was his concluding remark. To this I replied, I shall be delighted, with an infusion of as much hauteur as I could muster into my tone. Then turning on my heel, I returned with my cigarette, which had meanwhile gone out, to our own room. I said nothing, either to my brother or my friends, about what had happened, and the more so because they were at that moment engaged in a dispute of their own, but sat down in a corner to think over the strange affair. The words, "'You are a cad, young sir,' vexed me more and more the longer that they sounded in my ears. My tipsiness was gone now, and in considering my conduct during the dispute, the uncomfortable thought came over me that I had behaved like a coward. Yet what right had he to attack me? I reflected. Why did he not simply intimate to me that I was annoying him? After all, it may have been that he was in the wrong. Why, too, when he called me a young cad, did I not say to him, A cad, my good sir, is one who takes offence? Or why did I not simply tell him to hold his tongue? That would have been the better course. Or why did I not challenge him to a duel? No, I did none of those things, but swallowed his insults like a wretched coward. Still the words, You are a cad, young sir, kept sounding in my ears with maddening iteration. I cannot leave things as they are, I at length decided, as I rose to my feet with the fixed intention of returning to the gentleman, and saying something outrageous to him, perhaps also of breaking the candelabrum over his head if occasion offered. Yet, though I considered the advisability of this last measure with some pleasure, it was not without a good deal of trepidation that I re-entered the main salon. As luck would have it, M. Kolpikoff was no longer there, but only a waiter engaged in clearing the table. For a moment I felt like telling the waiter the whole story and explaining to him my innocence in the matter, but for some reason or another I thought better of it, and once more returned, in the same hazy condition of mind, to our own room. "'What has become of our diplomat?' Dubkoff was just saying. "'Upon him now hang the fortunes of Europe.' "'Oh, leave me alone,' I said, turning moodily away. Then as I paced the room something made me begin to think that Dubkoff was not altogether a good fellow. There is nothing very much to admire in his eternal jokes and his nickname of diplomat, I reflected. All he thinks about is to win money from Woloda and to go to see his auntie. There is nothing very nice in all that. Besides, everything he says has a touch of blackguardism in it, and he is forever trying to make people laugh. In my opinion he is simply stupid when he is not absolutely a brute. I spent about five minutes in these reflections, and felt my enmity towards Dubkoff continually increasing. For his part, he took no notice of me, and that angered me the more. I actually felt vexed with Woloda and Dmitri because they went on talking to him. "'I tell you what, gentlemen, the diplomat ought to be christened,' said Dubkoff, suddenly, with a glance and a smile which seemed to me derisive, 
and even treacherous, yet, oh, Lord, what a poor specimen he is! You yourself ought to be christened, and you yourself are a sorry specimen, I retorted with an evil smile, and actually forgetting to address him as thou. In Russian, as in French, the second person singular is the form of speech used between intimate friends. This reply evidently surprised Dubkoff, but he turned away good-humouredly, and went on talking to Woloda and Dmitri. I tried to edge myself into the conversation, but since I felt that I could not keep it up, I soon returned to my corner and remained there until we left. When the bill had been paid and wraps were being put on, Dubkoff turned to Dmitri and said, "'Whither are Orestes and Pedalian going now? Home, I suppose, to talk about love. Well, let us go and see my dear auntie. That will be far more entertaining than your sour company.' "'How dare you speak like that and laugh at us?' I burst out, as I approached him with clenched fists. "'How dare you laugh at feelings which you do not understand? I will not have you do it. Hold your tongue!' At this point I had to hold my own, for I did not know what to say next, and was, moreover, out of breath with excitement. At first Dubkoff was taken aback, but presently he tried to laugh it off, and to take it as a joke. Finally, I was surprised to see him look crestfallen, and lower his eyes. "'I never laugh at you or your feelings. It is merely my way of speaking,' he said evasively. "'Indeed!' I cried. Yet the next moment I felt ashamed of myself and sorry for him, since his flushed, downcast face had in it no other expression than one of genuine pain. "'What is the matter with you?' said Woloda and Dmitri simultaneously. "'No one was trying to insult you.' "'Yes, he did try to insult me,' I replied. "'What an extraordinary fellow your brother is,' said Dubkoff to Woloda. At that moment he was passing out of the door, and could not have heard what I said. Possibly I should have flung myself after him and offered him further insult had it not been that just at that moment the waiter who had witnessed my encounter with Kolpikoff handed me my greatcoat, and I at once quietened down, merely making such a pretense of having had a difference with Dmitri as was necessary to make my sudden appeasement appear nothing extraordinary. Next day, when I met Dubkoff at Woloda's, the quarrel was not raked up, yet he and I still addressed each other as you, and found it harder than ever to look one another in the face. The remembrance of my scene with Kolpikoff, who, by the way, never sent me to say Nouvelle, either the following day or any day afterwards, remained for years a keen and unpleasant memory. Even so much as five years after it happened I would begin fidgeting, and muttering to myself whenever I remembered the unavenged insult, and was fain to comfort myself with the satisfaction of recollecting the sort of young fellow I had shown myself to be in my subsequent affair with Dubkoff. In fact, it was only later, still, that I began to regard the matter in another light, and both to recall with comic appreciation my passage of arms with Kolpikoff, and to regret the undeserved affront which I had offered my good friend Dubkoff. When, at a later hour on the evening of the dinner, I told Dmitri of my affair with Kolpikoff, whose exterior I described in detail, he was astounded. "'That is the very man!' he cried. "'Don't you know that this precious Kolpikoff is a known scamp and sharper, as well as, above all things, a coward, and that he was expelled from his regiment by his brother officers, because having had his face slapped he would not fight? But how came you to let him get away?' he added, with a kindly smile and glance. Surely he could not have said more to you than he did when he called you a cad. No, I admitted with a blush. Well, it was not right, but there was no great harm done, said Dmitri consolingly. 
Long afterwards, when thinking the matter over at leisure, I suddenly came to the conclusion that it was quite possible that Kolpikoff took the opportunity of vicariously wiping off upon me the slap in the face which he had once received, just as I myself took the opportunity of vicariously wiping off upon the innocent Dubkoff the epithet cad which Kolpikoff had just applied to me. End of section four. Recording by Bill Borst.